you can set certain tone from the top, but I'm still trying to figure out how much of it trickles down. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I sit down with Beth McCann, the District Attorney of Denver. We're going to talk about what it means to be a progressive prosecutor, what the barriers are to meaningful reform, and what a young attorney who's interested in criminal justice reform could achieve as a prosecutor. Here's our conversation. So I want to just kick it off by asking you um, why you decided to run for district attorney. You were a state legislator before this. Obviously, you were making change in, in your state. What impact did you think you could have as a district attorney that you weren't having as a state legislator? I think criminal justice is an area that hasn't seen a lot of progressive impact. Um, you know, we've seen more in healthcare or in education, but law tends to be pretty traditional, pretty stable, uh, and I feel that our criminal justice system isn't really working as well as it could. So I felt like with my background, I could move in and try to impact some changes um, in, the, in the criminal justice system in Denver. Looking at a more slightly longer term focus, what are the types of reforms that you, you know, can't do on day one, but that you're thinking about for your office? So one of the most challenging areas of criminal justice is the involvement of people with substance abuse and mental health issues. And um, we don't have great resources. Um, we have some great resources, but not very many, for people that have those kinds of mental health challenges. And they often get caught up in the criminal justice system because they're homeless, they um, have mental uh, illness issues, it can be violent, but more often it's smaller crime, shoplifting, um, you know, public urination, things of that nature. But they just cycle in and out and in and out. And then we also have, I think substance abuse is probably fundamentally um, one of the most difficult areas of criminal justice because Drugs in, are at the base of so many crimes, you know, either just a drug crime in and of itself, selling or possessing, um, but people, you know, will go to great lengths to get money for drugs. Um, people who are addicted to drugs will do almost anything to get funding. So we've got to get uh, do a better job of dealing with people with drug addiction. Um, the opioid crisis is sort of bringing this sort of to a national level. Um, so I'm thankful for that, although it is a little ironic that, you know, it's mostly, it's a lot of white people who are yeah. getting into the opioids. Um, but I'm thankful that we will put more resources now into treatment, I think, because it is an epidemic nationally. Yeah. Ironic in the sense that the criminal justice system primarily involves people of color, but that all this attention is now being paid to and, and may bring resources to a system because it's white people being affected? Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know. But I, I just want to back up one thing you said. 
the system isn't really primarily communities of color, at least where I am in Denver. Um, it's We have more white people involved in the criminal justice system. But I think what happens with um, communities of color is that often those folks cannot afford bail or cannot afford good attorneys, and so they end up in the system longer and perhaps um, having more trouble getting out of the system mm -hmm. completely. But for drugs themselves, there is often a large contingent of all races. Yeah. And there's disproportionate disproportionality, I guess. I guess what I meant to say is there's disproportionality in the system. But yes. it, it's interesting to know that Denver has slightly different demographics. Yeah. What are some of the barriers to reform? So coming into your office and being committed to a, you know, a progressive um, platform, what were you not anticipating? What were you anticipating in terms of barriers to getting things done? So, you know, I'm fortunate in that my office is uh, filled with really talented people, lawyers, victim advocates, investigators, uh, secretaries. Um, so coming in... Um, many people were receptive to a more progressive agenda, but <laughs> there are also many people in the office who are very traditional, and um, it, it's hard for them to uh, understand why I would be interested in um, less prison time, for example. Um, and, you know, you can set certain tone from the top, but I'm still trying to figure out how much of it trickles down uh, because sometimes I see cases that are being handled by my office and I'm like, kind of like, huh, <laughs> maybe we didn't need to charge six counts, you know, or maybe we, didn't, we shouldn't be filing the habitual criminal count, which is the three strikes and you're out. Um, and so I've put together a committee. One of, one of the seminars I went to for sort of new DAs uh, talked about one of the ways to get buy-in is to have a committee from the office look at an issue and make recommendations. So I asked this person, well, what happens if they recommend something that I don't agree with? So she <laughs> suggested that you have them give you options and make it clear that you make the final decision. But I think um, traditionally our office has filed, has kind of used this habitual criminal charges as um, a bargaining chip and my feeling is we shouldn't file those unless we really think the person deserves to be in prison the rest of their life um, and so we need to be looking at violent crimes at dangerous people you know who just have been given chance after chance after chance and just cannot stop committing crimes um, versus you know, the person who has possessed drugs um, and not really done harm in the sense of, you know, violence to someone else. So we're struggling with those kinds of issues. And when, um, you may know about this, but the U.S. Supreme Court um, ruled that life without the possibility of parole for juveniles is unconstitutional. So we had a period of time in Colorado where juveniles were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole under our statute. So all of those cases are coming back through. And 
I'm looking at each one of them. We had, I think, 18 in Denver. Um, so I'm looking at those individually and trying to figure out what is an appropriate penalty because personally I don't think life without the possibility of parole is appropriate for juveniles. Um, and you know, certainly the Supreme Court thinks that. But what happens is, so I'm looking at these cases and I'm thinking, well, you know, we should do one thing. And then I talk to the attorneys in the office who handled the case who pretty much feel like we shouldn't be revisiting these cases. So there's a tension there um, that's, I want to respect them and I want them to stay in the office because they're very good lawyers. Um, but I'm gonna decide differently than they believe. And so that creates this sort of underlying tension. That brings me to a question that we've been grappling with as law students a lot lately, which is if you're interested in criminal justice reform, what side do you join, right? I have a lot of new students, school just started, coming up to me and saying, I'm really interested in criminal law, but I just don't know, will I make a difference as a prosecutor or as a public defender? And, you know, it sounds like there is a lot of opportunity if you've had a career in public service and you're willing to, to make top-down change, although there are barriers. But what would you say to a, a young, what's the pitch for, for becoming a prosecutor if you're just graduating from mm -hmm. law school? Well, um, the prosecutors have the power. <laughs> so um, when I graduated, I was more defense-oriented. Um, and I applied for job for a job in the public defender's office and the DA's office. And I got the offer, I guess, first from the DA's office. And I had a friend that worked there in Denver. Um, and so I decided to go that route. And I'm very glad that I did because public defenders certainly can impact an individual's life. They have huge impact on an individual in how they represent them. Uh, but in terms of systemic changes or big policy changes, um, they're just not in the position to be able to do that. And they participate, like when we have our, in our legislation, legislative um, committees, we had testimony from public defenders and DAs. Um, um, so they participate, but in terms of just uh, policy, kind of both from the top and the bottom, you know, it's really the DAs who have that ability because we decide, number one, are we even going to charge someone? And number two, what are we going to charge them with? And what's an appropriate plea bargain? And what's an appropriate sentence, you know? So the public defenders are doing the argument on the other side, like why someone should be charged with a lesser offense or plea bargain. But they can't make that decision. You know, they can only argue to a DA. What would be your advice to a young prosecutor coming into an office? You know, as you said, a lot of a lot of DA's offices have you know, long lifers, like long-term attorneys, and very established cultures. And so, if you're a young prosecutor and you're looking up at that, and you want to take more of the positions that you've been advocating, right? Don't charge that that third strike um, charge or, or something like that. What would your advice be to them sort of looking up and trying to navigate a, a, a well-established culture as they're trying to affect change on, their, on yes. their level? Well, the first thing I would say is I think they should do a little research about a prosecutor's office. <laughs> um, so 
you know, depending on which community you are in, you may or may not have the ability to really be in a progressive office. So I think you want to you want to decide um, you want to look at who the prosecutor is, what is the prosecutor talking about, and if it's all, you know, put him in jail, you're going to have a tough time uh, in that office. Uh, I think most prosecutors try very hard to, to do justice, to do the right thing, even if they're the more conservative um, end of the spectrum. So I think if you do start working in an office, I think you, first of all, you, you need to learn to be a a really good trial lawyer and that starts you really start kind of with the misdemeanor sort of um, volume of cases so you're not gonna have a lot of time when you start to really be making policy or even <laughs> thinking about it but that said you do plea bargain with people so I think you a young attorney needs to really ask for guidance from his or her supervisor and um, have discussions about you know, don't be afraid to raise an issue like, really, is this the kind of case where we want to, you know, stick it to this guy, or is this one where we can be more flexible? Um, so I think you have to kind of feel that out as you go along. Yeah. Um, another note on young prosecutors, and then we'll we'll move on. Um, you mentioned, you know, the core role of a of a assistant district attorney is to do justice. And I've always grappled with the idea, like, I'm young, I'm just out of law school, I don't know anything about the world except what I've read in my textbooks and what my relatively sheltered life has, has taught me. Yeah. How do you deal with that burden, right? And how do you cope with the, or think about the idea that I am the person in this room that is supposed to be deciding what is just? That seems like a heavy... Yeah. Uh, weight to carry. Yes. Um, well, you do start with lower level crimes. So um, that's easier because no matter what decision you make, many times these people are going to get probation. Um, they're going to have opportunities to be successful and have a case dismissed. Um, and one of the hardest things, I think, for new attorneys in our system anyway is some of the more serious misdemeanors like domestic violence, assaults, um, things of that nature. And I think in that situation, you consult with your supervisor. I mean, we, in our office, we encourage the county court deputies to meet once a week, and they kind of talk about um, cases and what what they would suggest in a particular case. Um, so it's sort of a learning process um, as you go along. You begin to see what your colleagues are offering and you begin to see what, you know, when you see people coming back in that you gave a deal, then you begin to understand that maybe that person isn't going to be successful on probation. So it's just a learning process. Um, but it's really interesting and it's, it's really great work because you are, many times people's only contact with criminal justice is in the misdemeanor courtroom. So they form a perception of fairness and whether they are treated well in county court, which is misdemeanors. And Sorry, um, is, the, is the implication of that that they perceive that they were treated unfairly? Either okay. way. It's so it's just that 
that's their con that's their only contact. Okay. So if they feel they were treated unfairly, then they have a negative impact of criminal justice or impression. If they tr feel they were treated fairly, then they have a positive response. So the point of it is, is that I try to emphasize with my young deputies that everyone needs to be treated with respect and they need to take the time to explain to pro se defendants or others what is happening. Um, so it's that procedural justice, which is kind of a new buzzword, but you know, so people who feel like they're treated fairly are gonna have a better experience. Got it. Yeah, I, I, I just struggle with the idea of, you know, but for the grace of God, I could have made the same, I could have been picked up on the same mistake or made the same mistake. And yeah. it's hard to, to um, it's hard to be on the other side of that. I yeah. Think. So I can't talk about criminal justice without talking about racial justice. And I read somewhere that you uh, distributed to your office a copy, to everyone in your office a copy of the new Jim Crow. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Um, just for people who haven't read the book or aren't familiar with it, would you mind just sort of explaining the importance of the book and why you chose to distribute that to your attorneys? So it's called The New Jim Crow, and it's written by Michelle Alexander, who is a, a law professor. Um, so I read it when I was running for office. Actually, one of my African-American friends gave it to me. Um, so I read it, and I thought she did a very good job of documenting kind of historically um, what has happened to African-Americans that get into this system. Uh, and her premise, and I don't agree with everything she said, but her premise is that, you know, we used to have racial segregation after the Civil War. <clears throat> um, racial segregation continued as, new, as Jim Crow laws, uh, which kept, um, which took away some of the ability of blacks to be part of our communities and be successful. So her premise is that the criminal justice system then kind of took over as we passed civil rights laws and we no longer allowed segregation in schools and no longer allowed segregation overtly, that the criminal justice system kind of became the new way to um, disrupt the African-American community. One of the things that struck me the most from the book was how much um, how much Im impact the criminal justice system can have on the community, um, not just the individual, but her premise was that when we started this war on drugs back in the 80s um, with Reagan and then it continued with Clinton, uh, the federal government provided funding to law enforcement, DAs, police, police departments who arrested more um, drug dealers and arrest and prosecuted them. So of course, if that's where the money is, that's where law enforcement's going to go. So they started arresting a lot more people for drug uh, possession, for drug dealing, and it was often easier to make those arrests in the uh, communities of color where it tended to be in the open versus in the white community where it tended to be behind closed doors. So we had a lot of um, young African-American men, young Hispanic men being arrested and charged with drug offenses. And in the federal system, the mandatory minimums were so great that these young men would spend a good long period of time in prison. 
And that disrupts, so you're taking all these African-American young men out of their community, it leaves um, the community kind of without that presence to some extent. And so you have a lot more um, disruption of families, disruption of job opportunities, and so forth. So it just kind of perpetuates itself because then people get into dealing drugs more because that's how they can make money. Mm-hmm. So um, she also kind of talks about is colorblindness the best way to handle criminal justice? So we've always said, oh, we're colorblind. We don't treat people differently because of their race. Um, and her, she's kind of challenging that a little bit, like maybe that's something we lo- should look at mm-hmm. um, in conjunction with all the other factors that we look at in criminal justice. Uh, colorblindness is interesting because you can be colorblind with respect to the cases that come into your office but if the majority of cases are being picked up in communities of color, you can, you know, there's, there's many stages at which disparities can, um, can exist. So what role do you think that prosecutors should and can have in reducing racial disparities in the criminal justice system? So this is something that I struggle with, and I think we all struggle with, because when I, we had discussion groups in the office about the new Jim Crow, And so several of the deputies um, were saying, well, we have no control over that because we have to handle the cases that the police bring to us. So, you know, it's sort of, it's not really us, it's the police or it's the community um, not helping to police themselves. So it is a little bit more challenging because we are somewhat um, constrained by what, cases the police bring. But what I'm trying to do in my office, we've got um, someone coming in, a professor from University of Colorado at Denver, to help us with data and analyzing our data. The office hasn't had an analyst, a data analyst, and we haven't done a very good job of keeping track of race and ethnic background. So we're trying to establish those systems to look at do we, what, what do the statistics show in our office when we get the case, what are we charging, what plea bargains are we giving, what sentences are we recommending, um, in an effort to determine if there's implicit bias. You know, I think our deputies try very hard not to, to be racially biased, but all of us have biases. And so looking at what does the data show will help us. Um, I think being sensitive to it is also just important. If nothing else, this book, I think, generated some conversation that people might not otherwise have. Um, and I'm trying to decide, though, so we've had these discussion groups, so now what? You know, um, Do we pick another book um, and talk, try to talk about that? Um, or do we, once we get this data, what are we going to do with the data will be another piece of it. But... Um, it's it's a tough issue because you know it involves community activity, um, it pol- involves the police, um, so it's not just and judges you know who also have biases, so we all have to kind of look together at how are we handling these cases and what are we doing prevention wise in the community, and obviously being district attorney is an elected position right. And so there's, you know, an accountability to the people who elect you. But as we talked about from the new Jim Crow, there's also 
a phenomenon where people um, with histories in the criminal justice system are often disenfranchised. So do you sense a sort of tension there between the, the people that are um, in the system that you're affecting aren't able to vote sometimes? So in Colorado, people in the criminal justice system are able to vote. Well, felons, once they finish parole, they go back to the voting. So we don't have the law that you can never vote again. I think it's appropriate that um, people be able have all their rights restored once they've completed their criminal justice you know, punishment or have sort of paid for their crime, that they should have those rights re restored. So kind of on board with that. Uh, and switching gears on the, on the subject of, sort of stakeholders and your office sits at the intersection of many different criminal justice law enforcement agencies. Uh, I read that your office recently charged, I believe it's a sheriff department sergeant for using excessive force. Yes. And um, a common criticism of prosecutors is that you know, they're not uh, best suited to deal with these cases because you have to collaborate with law enforcement on such a regular basis and carrying out the rest of your cases. So I wonder if you could just respond to that critique, and you don't have to comment specifically on this case. But right. Um, I think that one of the most, probably the most difficult area that I have to deal with is um, allegations of misconduct by law enforcement um, because we do work closely with them and the vast majority of law enforcement officers do their job really well. They uh, have no intention and never do um, break laws. Uh, but there are allegations of those who do use excessive force or who do overreact and we have to look at those cases very, very carefully and they're tough. Um, it's tough to look at. Um, so, but that said, if I believe that an officer has broken the law and that I have enough evidence that a jury could reasonably conclude that they violated the law beyond a reasonable doubt, um, then I will charge them. But I think it's challenging, and I think there are valid concerns about whether a DA's office is the right place to have those investigations done. Um, we have had discussions in the legislature about should the attorney general take that over, which is the statewide um, law enforcement. And I wasn't really supportive of that because attorney general's offices typically do not do much street-level crime. They do big drug deals or big securities fraud or that kind of thing. They don't... Um, typically sort of handle these sort of violent crimes. So I felt like our homicide detectives were better able to investigate those kinds of cases, and we have a very good crime lab that does our crime lab investigations. So I felt like um, it wouldn't work very well to have the attorney general do it. But I also, you know, I mean, if the legislature went that direction, that would be fine with me. It would take it off my plate, <laughs> which... Do you feel sort of pressure and tension in investigating or pursuing cases like this? Of course, yeah. There's a lot of public outcry, as you know, about police activity and police excessive force. 
And so I've worked hard with my community. When I was in the legislature, I represented an area that had a large percentage of African-American population. So I know a lot of the folks and the leaders in that community. And I have now established an advisory council on police relations with the community and hope to be able to establish that trust level with the community. So when I do make a decision that I'm not filing a case, um, there will already be that level of trust. But it's hard because the natural inclination is there isn't much trust. Yeah. Um, and I, the other thing that's really hard to explain to the public is these officers make decisions in a matter of seconds. You know, when you watch these body-worn cameras videos now, you see how quickly all this happens um, and how there's so many guns now on the street. So officers really have good reason to believe that anyone could be carrying a gun. Um, and so they have to make that very quick decision. And it's, you know, it's sometimes hard to explain that in retrospect after it's happened, what happened. Um, so they're tough. They're tough decisions. Um, and there's no easy way to deal with those. <laughs> yeah. So what would be your vision for the criminal justice system in Denver? So I would like our system to be very much oriented toward prevention of future crime so that we try to do what will um, have the best impact on both the defendant and a victim in order to reduce future crime. So that's prevention efforts and then treating people in the system in a way that gives them a chance to be, to change their behavior and become productive. Um, but ultimately, my responsibility is to keep the public safe in Denver. So uh, those people who are dangerous, who prey on other people, um, those people we have to take out of circulation and um, for a period of time. And how long that is, is you know, dependent on the crime, dependent on the background, and so forth. But I would like people in Denver to feel safe. I would like people in Denver who are involved in crime to feel that they will get a fair shake, um, but they have to be responsible for their crime and there will be some consequences. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about? Well, there's one other big issue that's out there in criminal justice right now, and that's immigration. And it may not be as much of an issue in the East Coast, but in places like Denver and the West, where we have so many folks from Mexico coming into our cities, um, it's a huge issue. So that's been a rocky road for a lot of cities because we want the undocumented to report crimes and to be willing to come to court and hold those folks accountable in our state court system. Um, and that often conflicts with ICE's uh, goals, which is to get these folks that are undocumented and deport them. So we sort of have this constant tension going on. Um, and I'm afraid that fewer people are reporting crime, fewer people are coming to court. And um, I've just learned that our probation department actually cooperates with ICE sometimes when um, someone is coming in for their probation appointment. So 
it's like a catch-22. You know, if you show up, you might get stopped by ICE at the probation department. If you don't show up, you're going to get a warrant for your arrest. And so then you get arrested and then deported. So it's, um, we need to, we need to see if we can't work out a better compromise, you know, from the state system, I would like us to be able to do our cases. Um, and then let the federal government do what they want to do after we've finished our case and the person may be in jail or may be out. But, you know, I'd like us to hold people accountable for their crimes. But it's, you know, anything involving an undocumented, if I don't file a charge, it becomes very controversial because people just, some people feel so strongly about the undocumented and it's, it's a very divisive issue. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Beth, and uh, leave it there. This has been Wardier, Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I want to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, specifically Brooke Hopkins and Anna Weig, for their help making this podcast. I want to thank everybody at Poddington Bear, who composed our theme music, and I want to thank you guys for listening. I also just want to point out that the opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and that of my guests. Uh, They do not reflect the opinions of the Criminal Justice Policy Program, Harvard Law School, or Harvard University. Thanks for listening.